This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Today, as that video said, we're here to ask God to give us eyes to see what we've been searching for all along. What are you searching for in life? What are you searching for? Maybe you're searching for a sense of peace in the midst of so much chaos. Maybe you're searching for meaning and purpose. Maybe you're searching for a sense of accomplishment. Wanting to know that your life has counted for something. Maybe you're searching for financial security, financial freedom. Maybe you're searching for happiness. Maybe you're searching for love. Or maybe you're thinking, I'm actually not searching for anything. Like, I'm pretty good, you know. Um, And I hear you, but what is your life about? Don't we all want to think that life means something? I think we're all on a quest of a search of some kind. Today we're going to read about an interaction that Jesus had with two people and what they were searching for. And this interaction takes us right into the heart of what we're celebrating today on Easter, Resurrection Sunday. This story can be found in a book of the Bible called the Gospel of John. And so if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and uh, open to the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You shoot your hand up in the air. We have people in the back who'd love to get one for you. So just go ahead, raise your hand. We'd love to put a Bible in it. We're going to be in John chapter 1. The context of what we're about to read is that there's been this man named John who's been teaching about the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah is this prophetic figure that God talked about through Old Testament prophets who who would come and bring salvation, who would bring deliverance, who would bring life. And John has been teaching that this Messiah, he's about to come. And he's saying things like, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. And then one day he sees Jesus walking by. And this is what happens in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked as Jesus walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And he said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day for about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. Let's bow our heads and have a moment of prayer as we quiet our hearts and ask God to speak to us through the preaching of his word. I want to encourage you just to pray for yourself and ask God 
to open you to what he might have to say to you today. Now please pray also for me that I would be able to speak clearly and in a way that is helpful to you. God, we open ourselves to you today. Would you help us to see what you want us to see? Lord, would you help us to have our affections stirred in ways you want to have our affections stirred? Please meet us through the preaching of your word, we pray, for the good of our souls and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we see here as Jesus walks by John is that John looks at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which is another title for the Messiah. And so here's what's going on. John's saying, that guy I've been telling you about that's coming, he's here, and that's him. And two of John's disciples hear John say this, and they immediately run after Jesus. But when they come up to Jesus, Jesus turns to them, and as he so often did, he asked them a question. He asked them, what are you seeking? Or another way to say that is, what are you searching for? And there's something in this question that leads these guys to a place of confusion because they're not able to answer his question right away. Jesus then responds with an invitation and it is that invitation that takes us right into the story of Easter. So today, as we consider what we are searching for, let's go through this passage and let's look at the question and then see the confusion and then hear Christ's invitation. So our first point this morning is the question. The question. When these disciples come up to Jesus, notice he does not start by asking them, so what do you think about what John said? Do you think what John said is true? Who do you think that I am? No, he doesn't ask them anything about what they're thinking. He asks them, what are you seeking? What are you searching for? And that word there for seek or search is a word in the original Greek that, that speaks of a desire. And so here's what Jesus is asking. He's asking them, what are you desiring? What do you want? What's happening is he's not engaging them on an intellectual level only. He's asking them a question that directs them to examine their hearts. You see, this is what Jesus assumes. He assumes that what is driving these men is some kind of inner desire. Now, this runs counter to how we typically like to picture ourselves. We like to think of ourselves that we are primarily driven by our thinking. We picture our minds as the mission control that defines us and directs our lives. Like, we are scientific people. We just need to be given the facts, and then we'll be able to make rational decisions. That idea is actually a holdover from the Enlightenment, where a philosopher famously said, I think, therefore I am, Rene Descartes. 
His whole point was thinking is the essence of what it means to be a human. Thinking is what makes us who we are. And on the one hand, Scripture would certainly affirm the importance of us being thinking beings. We are told to take our thoughts captive, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We are told to renew our minds, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Learning and thinking are a crucial part of ourselves, but that is not a holistic understanding of who we ultimately are. Because while thinking is important, Scripture does not say that we're defined by how we think. No, actually, God's Word says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. What this is saying is that the causal core of a person, the springs from which flows all our lives, is not our brains, but our hearts. We are shaped primarily by our wants, by our desires. Which is why information alone will not change us or move us. Case in point, back in 2008, the FDA made a law requiring all fast food restaurants to list the nutritional value of each of their menu items. So you could finally see how many calories were in all those things we've been eating for a long time. The assumption was that if Americans were better educated on the nutritional facts about their food, they would then begin to make better decisions. And so uh, America has been having a really rampant problem of obesity for quite some time, uh, and it's putting a real strain on our healthcare system long before COVID started doing that. And so it was, it was a real problem. So they're trying to address it. We're going to give people the facts because we are thinking beings and the facts will change their behavior. But after a year of research, the results came back, as I'm sure you can imagine, that the policy didn't change people's eating habits whatsoever. In fact, people ate even more fast food than they did the year before. Because you can know that a Five Guys burger and fries has about 2,000 calories in it. It's about what one adult person needs for the entire day. Like you can know that and you can know that, yeah, probably eating that in one sitting is not a good idea. But if you've had a hard day at work and you're driving past the five guys, you're going to want a little comfort food. Or even actually, it doesn't even take a hard day at work. It just takes driving by and maybe having your window down. And that smell just starts wafting in. And all of a sudden... What you know is going to be overruled by what you want. This is the point that Jesus is making in his questions. He's showing us that we are, we are driven, ultimately, by our desires, which is important for us to understand. Because what this means, it means that if, we are, if you're here and you're curious about God today, someone who's like, yeah, I'm spiritually open, maybe even you would say you're, you're seeking him, or if you're here and you do believe in Jesus, you do know him, and, and you desire to grow spiritually, we need to understand God cannot be pursued only intellectually. Now, I'm not trying to knock that. Uh, I'm in the middle of, you know, getting a second theology degree. Like, I believe in learning, you know, and, and so don't get me wrong. Learning about God is great, and it's really important. But here's what we need to understand. You can consume all the knowledge you want about God. You can read every book, listen to every podcast, 
go on YouTube and hear amazing sermons, far better than mine. You can read the Bible every day. And if there was Bible jeopardy, like you'd be able to kill it. Like you know who King Joash is, you know this obscure figure in the Old Testament, you know where he falls in the lineage, like you've got your timelines down, you know, you've got your pens out, you've got everything marked up, your Bible, like you know it. But all that knowledge, while good, will not change you if it doesn't change what you love. The peace, the purpose, the joy, the meaning, whatever you're searching for will continue to elude you because we are people who are primarily not driven by our thinking but by our wanting. We're driven by our desires. And so Jesus asks us this question, what are we seeking? What are we searching for? What do we want? But that question can lead to some confusion. Takes us to the next point in this story. Jesus asks these disciples, what do they want? And they, they answer his question with a the question. Uh, they say, uh, 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 I don't know, where are you staying? They, they actually can't a- answer his question. There's nothing wrong with asking where he's staying. That, that's a fine question, but it shows that they're, they're a little bit confused. They're not sure what to do with this, this deeper level of questioning that Jesus is leading them into. You see, we're driven by our desires. They, 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 they knew they wanted to run after him, but they weren't really sure why they wanted to do that. See, we're driven by our desires, but sometimes we aren't sure exactly where our desires are taking us. Knowing what we want is not always that easy. It makes me think about a scene from the movie The Notebook, which I might have seen, where Rachel McAdams and Ryan Gosling are having this conversation, like she had left him a long time ago, gotten, you know, engaged to another guy, then she comes back to him and she's trying to figure out what she wants. And she's confused. And the Ryan Gosling character says, now would you just do something for me, please? Just picture your life 30, 40, 50 years from now. If it's with that guy, then go. I've lost you once before. I can do it again. But don't take the easy way out. And she goes, easy way out? There is no easy way out. Wherever I do, someone gets hurt. It's like, stop thinking about other people. Stop thinking about what he wants or what I want or what your parents want. What do you want, Allie? What do you want? I don't know. It's not that simple. But what do you want? I have to go. Like I said, I might have seen it a couple times. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. She takes off because it's not that simple. We're not always sure what we want. And we can want competing things. If you ask me, do you want to exercise and be healthy? Or do you want to eat cheesesteaks for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? My answer is yes. Yes, I want both those things. But they certainly will lead me in two very different directions. And so which do I know is the real me? Am I made to be someone who's fit? Or am I made to be a cheesesteak lover? Which is the one that's actually going to deliver to me what I'm searching for? See, our culture tells us all the time we need to learn to just like listen to our hearts like that's the message of every Disney movie. I'll save you some money. It's just going to be, listen to your heart. You know, that's, that's the plot line. Selena Gomez will sing. 
The heart wants what the heart wants. What about when our hearts want things that compete with one another? How can we listen to our hearts when our hearts keep changing what they're telling us? See, this collides with our current cultural moment because our culture says we're defined by our core desires and expects us to know somehow innately what those desires are. But I just push back on that and say, how do we know? How do we know? The reality is we've never been in a moment in human history where we've ever been more free than right now to do whatever we want. We have more resources than ever. We have more time than ever. We have more information than ever. And culturally, almost any kind of lifestyle or choice is going to be affirmed and celebrated. We've never been more free to follow whatever desires come into our hearts. And yet, instead of this leading to the utopia that we're promised it would, every mental health indicator shows that we've never been more depressed, we've never been more anxious, we've never been more suicidal as a community. There's just so much hurt and pain in our culture. While we've never been more free, it seems that we've also never been more dissatisfied. Could that be because there's a confusion in our desires? Could that be that's not just as simple as listening to our hearts? Our desires can be a confusing place. And often that can lead us, as we look within ourselves, we, we, we can come in conflict with ourselves and we can feel an, an angst within our being. And also sometimes the very thing that we think we want, the very thing that we think that we're searching for, we can get it and when we do, we realize this isn't it. And few things can be so disorienting as getting what you thought you were searching for and it not deliver what you thought it would. I think about this interview that Tom Brady gave after winning his third Super Bowl before the age of 30. He said very honestly, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is it. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think it's got to be more than this. The interviewer asks him, like, so what's your answer? Like, what do you do with that? And he just kind of shakes his head and says, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. He's saying he thought that he wanted Super Bowls. He thought he was searching for fame and acclaim and accomplishment. But it did not deliver what he thought it would. It makes me think about something Jim Carrey said in an interview where he said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and be able to do everything they've ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. Like we're searching for something. We're driven by our desires, but this can be confusing because we can often have competing desires and even the achievement of our desires can leave us unsatisfied. So then what is the answer to the search that we're on? and the confusion that we can find ourselves in. Well, this takes us to the invitation that Jesus gives. The invitation. Jesus asks these disciples a question, what do you want? They get confused, aren't sure how to answer. So then Jesus gives them this invitation, come with me and you will see. Notice, he does not give them a bunch of logical syllogisms. 
bunch of proofs for the existence of God. He's not hand them a big systematic theology book to read or make an argument full of propositional truths. No, he invites them into a relationship. Come and spend time with me. Come and be where I am. And these guys take him up on that invitation and watch what happens in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. See, here's how you know something's touched your heart. You want to tell other people about it. Like when we find a great restaurant, we just have to share that information with other people, don't we? We, we watch a show that we think is awesome, and we got to be like, hey, man, you got you to see this. This is just what we do as humans. We become evangelists for things that have captured our hearts. And that's what's happened with Andrew here as he went and spent time with Jesus. Jesus had so captured his heart that he had to go tell his brother about him. Why? Why, why was that Andrew's response? Because in Jesus... Andrew found what he'd always been searching for, but didn't even know it. In Jesus, he found that every desire of his heart was ultimately satisfied in being with Christ. Because Jesus is the one that our hearts were ultimately designed to love. A fish might have a desire to see trees. They might think that happiness comes from rolling around in the sand. They might have a vision of their life of just being able to bask in the sun. But they'll find all those things ultimately unsatisfying to them. Because if they get out on dry land, they might momentarily enjoy seeing some trees. They might be happy in the sand for a moment. And maybe bringing in the sun brings them some brief joy. But none of those things will ultimately satisfy them. And no matter how much they get of them, their pursuit of those desires will ultimately only leave them hurting and gasping for air. Why? Because fish were made to be in water. Friends, we are made by God to be in a relationship with God. And we will not be satisfied until we are doesn't matter how much money you have, how much freedom you have, what you're able to do. We are made by God to be in a relationship with God, and we will be hurting and gasping for air until we learn to be in a relationship with the one that our souls were designed to love. And this is the good news of Easter, that Jesus has come to show us the one that we were made to be with forever. Jesus has come so that we could know who God is. Not just have an idea about God, we could see God embodied, for he walked amongst us. Jesus came to make God known, and he came to make relationship with God possible. Because he is, as John says in verse 35, the Lamb of God. You see, in order to be in a relationship with God, something needs to be done about the problem that God has with us. God has a problem with us. Contrary to what like, can get floated around in our culture, we're not just all God's children. No, actually, we were made by God to live life for God 
and we don't naturally do that. What we naturally do is take the life that God's given us to live for Him and we use it to then live for ourselves and do our own thing. We take God's gift of life and use it to turn our back on the giver of that life. And maybe that comes through doing really bad things. Maybe it comes through doing things that are, you know, morally neutral. But the reality is, any expression of life that's not lived God's way, but is instead lived by ourselves and our way, determined by us, is ultimately rebellion against God. And that creates, as you can imagine, a problem between us and God. There's been a break in our relationship with our maker. God God has something against us. It's the sin that we commit against him. Our sin against God brings a disconnect between us and God. He can't be with us because we have wronged him. But Jesus came to be the Lamb of God so that we might be restored to a relationship with God. That phrase, Lamb of God, is seat in Old Testament imagery. One of the places that is most poignantly mentioned is through a Jewish prophet named Isaiah, who in the 53rd chapter of his book talked about how there would be Messiah, there would be a Savior sent by God who would come and would be crushed for our iniquities, would come and be pierced for our transgressions, who would come and he would be like a lamb, Isaiah says, led to the slaughter for us, as he would give his life for our life of sin. And John, who knew his Old Testament very well, when he sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. This one has come. The one on whom our sins will be placed the one who will be crushed by God for the wrongs that we have done. He's here. And Jesus proves that to be true because he goes and he dies on a cross. Not because people killed him. John chapter 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life. I choose to lay it down. Jesus would become like a lamb led to the slaughter as all our sins, all our iniquities, all our transgressions, all our wrongs were put on him and on the cross he endured in his soul the punishment that we deserve. Jesus came to deal with our wrongs by taking them upon himself so that through faith in him we could have a relationship with God and know that even though we are sinners, We are loved. We are welcomed. We are restored. Because Jesus paid for our sins. And the reason we can know this is true, the reason we can know that the Lamb being slain, that Jesus' death on the cross, that we just celebrated on Good Friday, the reason we can know that that is enough to secure salvation for us is because of where that slain Lamb is standing right now. I told you this was an Easter sermon for a reason. The book of Revelation speaks about where this Lamb of God is right now. You don't have to put that up just yet. Um, Let me build a little bit first. Come on, steal my punchline. Um, 
The book of Revelation is a book that speaks about the end of time. And in Revelation chapter 5, there's this, this vision of all of heaven weeping because there's no one who is worthy to open God's scroll. The opening of the scroll is a visual for the end of time when the, the story of the earth will finish and God will have final victory over all, equal, over all e- evil. And so, and so in order for the suffering of this world to end and evil to be vanquished, this scroll that ends the story has to be able to be opened. But heaven's weeping because no one can open it. No one is found worthy to open this scroll. They're just envisioning perpetual suffering forever. But then this is what happened. Now you can put it up. Revelation chapter 5. John writes, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. You see, there's one who is finally found to be worthy. He's a lion from the tribe of Judah, which was the tribe of kings. He is a descendant of David, who is Israelite's great king. There's one who has come from royal lineage, and he's worthy to be open the scroll. Why is he worthy? It says because he has conquered. You see, in order to be worthy to open the scroll and vanquish evil, this champion had to defeat evil's greatest champion, which is death. And so John turns around and he anticipates seeing this great death-conquering king of kings, lord of lords, this roaring lion. But as he turns around, he doesn't see a lion. Look at what he finds. Revelation chapter 5, 6 through 9. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Friends, the Lamb who was slain, we need to understand, He is alive and well and victorious in heaven. He, he was slain, but His death was not His end. No, the death of Jesus was the means to His end of His great victory over sin and death. For He is the one who has gone into death and come back victorious in resurrection life. Jesus is not a dead martyr who just lived to show us a good example. No, he is the risen Savior who has defeated sin, hell, and death once and for all. And if we place our faith in Christ, this is how we know that our sins are forgiven. This is how we know that we are cleansed. This is how we know that we can have a relationship with God now and forever because the Lamb of God is standing in heaven for us in resurrection, glory, and triumph as a living proof of the salvation that Jesus has accomplished. And so whatever we think we're searching for, friends, all our desires are ultimately meant to lead us to God. 
God's created us to be people who are driven by our hearts. Why? So that our hearts will ultimately take us to Christ and in him behold the Lamb of God whose love nothing in this world could possibly rival. You see, what, what this is saying to us here today, friends, is that Christianity is not merely a religious code of conduct or some kind of interesting intellectual exercise. No, because Jesus is alive, the Lamb was slain, has risen, and he's here. Christianity is a dynamic relationship that we can have with the living God. In the mid-fourth century, there was a famous man named Augustine. I'm closing with this. Augustine was wealthy, and he was in a position really to indulge whatever desires came into his heart. And he did. He withheld nothing from himself. And yet, in his autobiography, he writes about this restlessness that existed within himself. This disquiet that he didn't necessarily even tell others about, but he could feel it in himself. And then one day he came to know Jesus. He came to be enraptured and captured by the beauty of Christ. And in doing so, he wrote this. God, you've made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until we learn to find our rest in you. See, he had finally found his true self. As he came to know the God that he had made to be in a relationship with. God has made us for himself. Our hearts are restless until we learn to rest them in him. Friends, our hearts will always be restless. Our search will be unending until we let it lead us to Jesus, the one that we are made to be in a relationship with now and forever. The story goes on that one day Augustine was walking down the street and one of his former lovers cried out, Augustine, Augustine, come over here. Be with me, be with me. But he just kept walking. And she cried out again, Augustine, don't you know it is I? And he turns and says, yes, but it is no longer I. He had been radically changed. His desires, which had led him all over the place, were now found satisfied in the one he was made for, satisfied in Jesus. And so friends, as we come to a close, if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, I just want to tell you, he's the one you're searching for. He's the one you're searching for. If you don't believe me, come and you will see. Come and you will see. This moment is not by chance. It's not a random accident that you're in this room or maybe stumbling upon this at YouTube, maybe even many years after this sermon happened. This moment's not by chance. You can know Christ today. You can taste today the sweetness of salvation in Him. And it's simple. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 tells us if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe not just in our minds. It says, believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And I just pray you would do that. Pray you would do that. If you're here, you can come forward after the service. There'll be people up front who would love to talk to you, maybe answer some of your questions, love to pray with you. 
you don't feel comfortable doing that, but you have some questions or you're wondering, man, I want to take this next step, I'd love to talk to you. Feel free to hit me up. These are some of my favorite conversations to have. Easiest way to get in touch with me is just my email. Just remember my name, Jeff. And remember our church's name, Christchurch South Philly. So I'm just Jeff at ChristchurchSouthPhilly.org. I'd love to get together with you. But for those of us here who are followers of Jesus, I just have a question for us. It's a question I have to continually ask myself on a daily basis. You know about Jesus, but do you love him? You know about Jesus, but does Jesus have your heart? See, as we follow Jesus, can't there be so many things on the side of ro- on the road, just like Augustine was walking by that lady, so many things that just call out to us, come off the path, come be with me, and we can veer, and we can get so easily distracted, we can get busy filling our lives up with so many different things, we can give in to pursuing sin that we know displeases God. And it's not that we will deny Jesus, but all these things can become distractions that cause our affections for Christ to grow cold. And Christianity might still be the religious box that we check off, but it's no longer a dynamic relationship of life with Christ. Friends, this Easter, we're being invited afresh by God to know his love, to behold the Lamb of God. This is what we're about here at Christ Church. It's what we're trying to do every single one of our Sunday gatherings. It's why we get together in community groups to talk about life and what's going on. It's why we have Bible studies. It's why we do neighborhood service projects trying to serve people in the name of Jesus. All our community life as a church, really friends, it's designed to help us do one thing. That's to get our eyes back onto Christ and to behold the Lamb. We're just trying to be with Jesus here and trying to fill our minds and stir our affections with love for him, the one our souls were made to be with, so that we might live our lives in the light of his infinite and boundless love. And so this Easter, maybe God's calling you to have a relationship with him for the first time by placing your faith in Christ. Or maybe it's a call for you to Renew your relationship with Christ for the thousandth time. That's often what it is for me. In whatever place we find ourselves, let's take Jesus up on his invitation. Let's come and be with him. Let's look to him with eyes of faith. Let's behold the lamb who is slain and who is living in resurrected glory. And as we are with him, we will find in him everything that we've been searching for. Let's bow our heads in prayer.